0: We have another treat today. Uh, I am personally getting to know uh, the Nielsens. Uh, Dr. Nielsen is the president of Covenant College, which is up in Lookout Mountain. Uh, That is our denominational uh, college. So those of you that are thinking about where to send your son or daughter, this is a great place to send them. One of the Biles children, Lindy, has actually uh, been up there and is still up there, played basketball for them, will be graduating this year. Uh, So we've gotten a chance to get to know them a little bit, and I told him, if you're ever in this area, call me, holler at me, because I want you to preach. And uh, so here we are. He's here, and it's a treat to hear the Word of God from him. Uh, to get another voice within the broader church uh, community that we're a part of. So let's open up our scriptures and our hearts as he brings the word of God to us. I've had the privilege over the last uh, several months... Uh, to get to know the Biles family in another way. Um, I won't talk about that now, but you can ask the Biles or ask my wife about that after the service. But let me just say, we have a son. <laughs> and uh, about a couple of months ago, I was actually traveling uh, for the college out in Southern California and remembered in the back of my mind that uh, Jake was stationed at Camp Pendleton and called uh, Lindy, got a hold of his cell phone number, called Jake, and uh, just on the spur of the moment, uh, he was uh, free for lunch, and we had lunch in his little apartment, and just, that was a treasure for me, Jake, to get to know you in that, those few moments. And I asked Jake, uh, who was then a second lieutenant, have you, I don't know if you've been promoted, almost promoted to first lieutenant, I asked him, what makes for a good Marine officer? And he paused for a moment, and then he said this. A Marine officer eats last. And in that moment, I knew that if I had a son or a daughter that was heading off to war and was going to serve under an officer, I'd want him to serve under Jake Biles. Because I think that kind of leadership, which shows itself in servanthood and wanting the best for those in your command, uh, uh, is, would be at the top of my list. So thank you for that encouraging word, and you go with our prayers. And thank you, Jeff, for the privilege of being here this morning. I'd like us to look at a psalm, a wonderful psalm together. It's Psalm 99. Uh, it's a psalm that Charles Spurgeon, the great English preacher, called the Holy, Holy, Holy Psalm. And as I read it, I think you'll see why. It is a psalm that exalts God in his holiness. And we'll talk a bit more about holiness as we move through the psalm. But let me begin with, before I read the psalm, with these words from Isaiah. uh, Our God is a speaking God. In fact, even in most of his acting, he acts... By speaking. And his word is powerful. And so we are, um, some of you may be uh, carnivores and some of you may be herbivores, but we are all designed to be, uh, be herbivores. But we're all designed to be verbivores. We're all designed to be word eaters. And my prayer for this morning, my prayer for you as a congregation is that you would be word eaters, that you would be nourished by the words that God so graciously speaks. Here's what Isaiah says in Isaiah 40. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever." Listen, please, to Psalm ninety-nine. Do we stand for the reading? Stand for the reading of the word, please. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Moses and Aaron Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord and he answered them. In the pillar of the cloud, he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies in the statute that he gave them. O Lord our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. This is the Word of God. God. It's very hard to miss the importance of holiness as an attribute of God in the Bible. I think the Bible calls God holy more than anything else. More than sovereign, more than just, more than merciful, more than loving. Holy is that description of God that's repeated three times for emphasis, as you know, in Isaiah 6 and in Revelation 4, as the winged creatures circle the throne and continually cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. But I'm not sure that holiness is a very well understood attribute. It's not an easy concept to understand or define. I think the most common mistake we make is to think of it primarily in terms of human righteousness and human perfection run up to the top of the flagpole. In other words, as a moral perfection, like purity or right conduct. Holiness is surely that, but it is much, much more. Because at its root, holiness is not an ethical or moral concept at all. Holiness is what the philosophers would call an ontological attribute. It describes God's very being. It has to do with separation. It's what sets God apart from his creation. It concerns his transcendence and his otherness. In fact, when it is applied to humans, it means that they are separated, that they are set apart... To sanctify something is to set it apart for some godly use. And so the cry of the seraphs in Isaiah 6 and of the four creatures in Revelation 4 is the declaration that God is other, other, other. Or we might even say alien, alien, alien. There is nothing and no one like him. Isaiah 11:9 9 quotes God as saying, I am God and not man, the Holy One among you. So to declare that God is holy is to declare that he is not like us. Now that's part of the total biblical equation. Surely throughout the scriptures we see ways in which we are said to be like God. We're made in his image. And yet, Psalm 99 and many other passages of Scripture which emphasize the otherness of God are an incredibly important antidote to a universal trend and a universal tendency in human thinking about God. Holiness, otherness of God is an attribute that comes under enormous pressure in every age, certainly in our own, own age, as people wrestle with the otherness, the alien nature of God. There's much talk about God being like us, feeling our feelings, struggling with us in our sufferings, working alongside us in the battle of life. And there's certainly biblical truth there. And yet there are those who would suggest that God is much more like us than even that. In fact, we talked about it a bit in our Sunday school class this morning. Those who would suggest that God is just sort of a glorified human who doesn't quite know the future, who doesn't quite know how things are going to turn out, but he's very wise and he's very smart and he's very cunning, and chances are he'll win. A somewhat limited deity who works, who does his best to bring about the good purposes that he intends. So one of the ways in which this holiness attribute comes under pressure is that we would, as it were, cut God down to our size. But this attribute can come under pressure in the other direction as well. And there are those movements and those trends these days where we would look inside ourselves and we wouldn't like the conclusion that we are not gods. And if you re- look on bookshelves in in uh, many bookstores, if you uh, consider a book like uh, The Secret or, or other common popularly read books, you will hear writers who cry out, we are like God. And so whether it's cutting God down to our size or building ourselves up to, God, to God's size, there's a tendency to need the antidote of Psalm 99. I think one of the reasons people are inclined to diminish God's holiness, to diminish the distance between us, is that we know that we are not holy. We know that we are finite. We know all too well that we are like ourselves. And so confronting a holy God is profoundly threatening. While we may be drawn in some sense to holiness, we realize that in its presence, we are in danger of being destroyed in the confrontation. That's Isaiah, woe to me, I am undone. Habakkuk, confronted with God in his holiness, said, I heard and my heart pounded, my lips quivered at the sound, decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. When the disciples watched as Jesus calmed the seas, what did they say? What sort of man is this? In fact, I heard a preacher uh, refer to this as the ultimate xenophobia. Xenophobia is always one of those top ten phobias. It's fear of strangers. And we are all xenophobic when it comes to being confronted with a holy God. In fact, uh, Jonathan Edwards says that this fear of God's otherness is at the very root of our fallen nature. And he even says that it's not fully overcome even when we are justified and brought into God's family. It, it is a fear that rightly remains with us in some measure until we are glorified. That's why at the end of that chapter in Hebrews... Uh, We hear those words, for our God is a consuming fire. And I've often thought that it's rather trivial that we often would sing, Open my eyes, Lord, I want to see Jesus. And I want to say, Are you sure? Are you ready for that? If you read the descriptions of Revelation 1 and other places... And so we're inclined to soften this aspect of God's character to make him more familiar, to domesticate him. We're inclined to recast him in our own image. There's a wonderful book published a few years ago by the chairman of the Department of Religion at Boston University. I don't know that Stephen Prothero is is a believer, but he wrote a book a few years ago called American Jesus, How the Son of God Became a National Icon. And what he does is study the history of America and the history of Jesus in America to show how in each era of the history of the country, the the folks, the people in those eras have recast Jesus to look more like themselves. And he examines it in the hymnody and in the art and in the preaching and shows how in each era we have tried to recast the Lord Jesus in our image. The problem is that if we lose hold of the strong idea of holiness, if we lose hold of the otherness of God, then we will lose hold of the other attributes of God as well. They hang on holiness. If he is not holy, if he's not set apart from his creation, then he cannot be sovereign over his creation. If he is not holy, then his love cannot be an effective love that truly saves. If he is not holy, then his mercy cannot be the kindness that truly comforts. And the salvation he brings cannot provide a trustworthy and eternal assurance. If he is not holy, then he becomes like us. Changeable, undependable, and ultimately not one in whom we ought to put our absolute trust. And so, as we look very briefly at this psalm this morning... My prayer is that our hearts would cry out yet again, even more, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. It is indeed good news that God is not like us. Well, this psalm, uh, in the, even the way it's structured, shows us three ways in which God is not like us. Three wonderful little sections set apart by the refrain. If you noticed it in the reading, there at the end of verse 3, Holy is He. There at the end of verse 5, holy is he. And there at the end of verse 9, for the Lord our God is holy. Three aspects in which God is not like us. Three aspects which ultimately will take us directly to the good news of the gospel and prepare us for a table that lies before us this morning. First, verses 1 to 3. The Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim, let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion, he is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name, holy is he. How is God like us, not like us? He reigns and we don't. The psalm begins with a wonderful declaration. The psalm begins with a declaration which is not the conclusion of a long argument, but is in fact the ultimate premise of For all arguments, the Lord reigns. This phrase is designed to stop us in our tracks. It is presented here as the most basic fact. We read it in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. There is no other starting place. Again, in Sunday school, we were talking about human reason. And the the attempts that people uh, uh, go to, to try to ground their view of the universe in reason. The problem is that reason has to start somewhere. And according to the portrayal of reality that scripture presents, this is where reason rightly starts. The Lord reigns. And immediately the psalmist alerts us to the fact that we ought to respond in particular ways. The Lord reigns. Let The peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. Now, that image of the cherubim is an image uh, in its earthly form of the cover of the Ark of the Covenant. The two ends of the cover were covered with two golden cherubim, carved figures. And that place, seated between the cherubim, was the symbolic throne of God on earth. It's where he came, symbolically, to rule and reign over his people. Exodus 25 says, there, above the cover, between the two cherubim that are over the Ark of the Testimony, God says, I will meet with you and give you all my commands for the Israelites a picture of the majestic and exalted reign of God, His throne, as it were, on earth. And several times throughout the Old Testament, the writers of Scripture use this phrase, the cherubim, between the cherubim, to describe where God reigns. It is a place of immense grandeur and immense power. And when we're confronted with such a God who orders all things according to His perfect will, who holds every... Breath that we take in his hands, it is right that our response would be a response of trembling. And in fact, that the response of the whole creation would be quaking. In verse 2, the writer reminds us that not only is God great among those who worship him, the Lord is great in Zion, but he is exalted over all the peoples. It's not just his own people, it's not just those who confess his name, it's all nations. In fact, in Psalm 2, Jesus, the the Son, quotes God as saying, I have given you the nations as your inheritance. Here's a picture of God himself who rules and reigns over all the nations. And what an encouraging note that is, as we look around the world and we wonder about Iran, and North Korea, and Russia, and we wonder about an upcoming election in this country. What a blessing to know that Iran does not belong to Ahmadinejad. Russia does not belong to Putin. America doesn't belong to George Bush, or Barack Obama, or Hillary Clinton. The Lord is exalted over all the peoples. And as he gives into his son's hands the nations of the earth as his inheritance, we can know on the authority of God's word that the son will have them. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Now, notice what happens in the next verse. Because the psalmist wants us to understand that this declaration of the otherness of God and that he reigns and we don't is not simply an intellectual affirmation about God. Notice the grammar of this psalm. Third person turns to second person. In verse 3... In verse 2, the Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Then in verse 3, let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. The psalmist is writing to tell us that this magnificent picture of a reigning God, a God who is alien, who is other than us, and that he rules over all things, is not simply to be a matter of intellectual assent. It's to strike deep into the heart of our very beings, so that we respond not with a nod, but we respond with a full intellectual and emotional weight of our faith. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is He. So the first way in which the writer wants us to see that God is not like us is that He reigns and we don't. And you know that's a blessing. To get up in the morning when you first open your eyes and not know what the day will bring. And to be able to affirm in mind and in heart and down in your gut. The Lord reigns. There is not one thing that can happen today that is outside of his ruling, gracious, powerful oversight of all things. What an assurance. Young or old, the Lord reigns. The writer moves on. Verses 4 and 5. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. The second way in which the writer wants us to know that God is not like us. That he is holy is that he is just, perfectly just. As I have a one brother who's five years older than I am, and um, when we were younger, there were times when I was sure that my father always took my brother's word for whatever happened. Right? You know who said that? I'm sure. And I'm sure that he um, was generally as fair as a man could be. But it didn't seem that way to me, right? But he didn't seem that way to me. But I'm sure he made wrong judgments. You see, he's not holy. He's not perfectly just. And that's what makes these verses so remarkable. They they remind us that God is God and not man. And that means that he has established an order for his universe that is perfectly just and equitable. He has ordered all the parts of creation. So that at the end of the day, the scales of right and wrong, the scales of good and evil will be balanced as he intends them to be balanced. He has established equity and he executes justice. And that's a tough pill for us to, fo- to swallow sometimes. I want to avoid blame. And you do too. I'm full of excuses. We are all full of excuses. If you had grown up where I did, if you had to live with the person I live with, If you only knew what I'm going through, the psalmist in all of Scripture declares, God is just. He has established a just and righteous order. And you can know that he will execute perfect justice and righteousness throughout his creation. The psalmist tells us that we can see his justice clearly in Jacob, in his people, in the history of his people. He punished them when they disobeyed. He blessed them when they followed Him with all their heart. And just as we heard in that introduction to the baptism that there's continuity in Scripture, I think often there are those who would say, well, that the notion of God as just is an Old Testament notion. And somehow He ceases to be just and becomes miraculously loving in the New Testament. And yet God's justice and love meet throughout the entire scripture. Listen to 2 Thessalonians. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. That's New Testament talk. So all throughout scripture we have this picture that... You look around a world of grotesque injustice. You look at wickedness and evil, and the suffering that results. And the psalmist reminds us that there reigns in heaven a God, who has established his order for his creation, and it will end as he intends it. And that means no matter which side you're on, the so- which side of the injustice you're on if you're on the side of being a victim of injustice, if you're in a situation where you are experiencing the the horrific consequences of being treated unfairly, unkindly, unjustly, you can know you can walk faithfully and obediently and carefully without bitterness and without anger even now because you have that hope that we heard about earlier. A true hope, not a false hope. God will set things right. But it's true on the other side as well. If you're a perpetrator of injustice, be warned. God will set things right. Oh, how wonderful it is to know that there is a God who is not like us in that he has established an order for his universe. When you pick up the paper and you are almost in despair because of the injustice and evil around the world, lean into this section of Psalm 99. The Lord is just, he judges justly, he will bring all things to their rightful and just conclusion. Hang on, it's coming. Holy is he. Finally, Verses 6 to 9, Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord and he answered them. In the pillar of the cloud he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies and the statute that he gave them. O Lord our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. Holy, holy, holy God. Holy, he reigns, we don't. Praise his name. Holy is our God. He rules and judges justly, always. Holy is he. And finally, holy is our God. He is perfectly merciful and forgiving. Now, there were times uh, as a child when I was roundly punished for things that I did wrong, my father was a um, a fair and strict disciplinarian. In fact, I now own—I've never used, but I own—the leather strap that he used on me, and it's a treasured possession. But there were also times when, for reasons I can't explain, he withheld the punishment that I knew I deserved. And I can remember one night having told a whopper of a lie and having hidden, tried to hide one lie with others. I came home and found my father sitting in in the living room in the dark waiting for me. And I, frankly, expected to be obliterated. (laughs) But he invited me to sit down and he was silent for a few moments. And then he said this, I just want to tell you one thing. Your mother and I love you more than we can say. If something had happened to you tonight because of your stupidity, we would have been there. And a 14-year-old's heart absolutely melted in the face of a mercy that was, I believe, unearthly. And of my father... human as he was, could show me such mercy. What might we hope for from a God who is not like us? There's a picture here of Moses and Aaron and Samuel, and we don't have time to dig into these wonderful Old Testament stories. Why, are Mo- why do Moses and Aaron and Samuel show up in this psalm? Because for each of them, there is an Old Testament episode where, because of the disobedience of God's people, God was prepared to destroy them all. And in each case, Moses and then Aaron and then Samuel fell on their faces before the Lord and entreated him not to treat his people as they deserved. And in each case, God heard their plea, heard their intermediation, and relented wonderful pictures in Exodus 32 for Moses and Numbers 16 for Aaron and 1 Samuel 7 for Samuel. In all three cases, they spoke to God on behalf of the people and pled for his mercy and God answered them. He answered them and relented and showed mercy instead of Horrific punishment. Now, I just want to note one thing in passing because you might be reading along in verse 7 and you see in the pillar of the cloud he spoke to them. They kept his, and then it says, they kept his testimonies and the statute that he gave them. Now, that's an intriguing little couple of phrases to put in there. They kept, that is, Moses, Aaron, and Samuel, they kept his testimonies and the statute that he gave them. It sounds as if the reason God answered them was because they kept his testimonies and the statute that he gave them. In other words, we might assume that the reason that God answered them is that they were perfectly obedient. What do we know about Moses? What do we know about Aaron and Samuel and every human being ever conceived? And so we're one, we wonder immediately, What what is this? Description of Moses and Aaron and Samuel that they are described as keeping his testimonies in the statute that he gave them. Hold that thought. Once again, as you notice here, uh, the third-person grammar of verse 7 gives way to the second-person grammar of verse 8. O Lord, our God, you answered them. The intellectual affirmation finds its way down into our hearts, and we cry out with our entire beings thanksgiving and praise for a forgiving God. Marvelous picture of a God who is not like us. Marvelous picture of a God who is alien in His rule and reign over all things, in His perfect justice, in His infinite mercy to people who deserve His wrath and His punishment. And our hearts, much like the first readers of this psalm, ought nearly to explode with thanksgiving and praise. But I want to suggest that there is an important riddle hidden in this psalm. A riddle which the first readers of this psalm uh, may have understood, but if they did so, faintly. There were some mysteries, even in the words of Scripture, that probably they could not fully understand. How, at the end of the day, could God the God who rules and reigns over his creation, how could he be perfectly just and perfectly merciful at the same time? They knew that the blood of the animal sacrifices could not finally pay for their sins. Otherwise, they wouldn't have had to keep offering those sacrifices year after year after year. They knew that, their, that forgiveness would not come ultimately and finally by the blood of of bulls and goats. And yet they knew that God was just and forgiving. What could possibly hold these facets of God's holiness together? And in fact, the scriptures say that the prophets of the Old Old Testament searched intently for the answer to this riddle, longing to understand this mystery and Hebrews 9.8 says that the Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place, the most holy place, had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still standing. Those prophets died leaning forward, wanting to know the answer to the riddle. And Paul, of course, tells us, He tells us in many sections, many passages of Scripture. He tells us in Ephesians 1 that the explanation of the the mystery, the answer to the riddle, is Jesus. Did you see the riddle spoken of right in this psalm? Did you see it there in verse 8? O Lord, our God, you answered them. And then these two lines. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings, against whom does someone avenge wrongdoings? The wrongdoer. How can God both be an avenger of their wrongdoings and a forgiving God to them? A riddle which is solved, a riddle which is answered finally in the reality of one who took upon himself the full vengeance of God's rightful and just wrath against sin, so that in place of his punishment, we would receive his infinite mercy. Listen to how Paul connects God's justice and forgiveness in Christ from Romans 3. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice. Because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be both just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. What a picture of the otherness of God, his holy reign, his holy justice, his holy mercy coming together in the perfect obedience The sacrificial death, the ultimate mercy of God shown to you and me in our Lord Jesus. What's the best picture we have of God's awesome majesty? Jesus, ruler and king over all creation, the one whom God has set on the throne of heaven and earth forever, the one who will one day come back and destroy his enemies What's the best picture we have of God's perfect justice? Jesus. Who perfectly fulfilled all of God's just and righteous demands. Who took on himself the full wrath of God that you and I deserved. And who will one day judge all things. And what is the perfect picture of God's mercy and forgiveness? Jesus in whose death, by whose stripes, we are healed. The God who is not like us became like us so that we who are not like him could by his grace and mercy become like him and live in his holy presence forever. What glorious good news that God is not like us. Father, we thank you for this word. We praise you for Jesus in whom your perfect rule and reign and your perfect justice and your perfect mercy kiss. And we thank you for the table that lies before us, that sits before us, a table which reminds us of these grand realities of a holy, holy, holy God. Thank you, in your Son's name, amen.